This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hey everyone from NPR Music, I'm Robin Hilton. It's All Songs Considered. So this week the band Sun Lux is back with a new album. It's called Alternate Forms. And it's a completely reimagined version of their 2013 full-length, Lanterns. This reworking of Lanterns called Alternate Forms features wildly different interpretations of songs like Easy and Lost It to Trying by artists like Kishibashi, Anabi Savage, DM Stith, and a whole lot more. This is the first new album from Sunlux since they put out their acclaimed soundtrack to the film Everything Everywhere All at Once. So to mark the occasion, this week on All Songs Considered, we're sharing an encore presentation of our interview with Sunlux frontman Ryan Lott about that film score. This originally ran near the top of the year, just after that score was nominated for two Oscars. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Imagine that you had your whole life to live all over again. You could make completely different choices. You could take an entirely different path. Who do you think you'd be? Who are the people in your life? And what's your relationship with them like? Would you change anything? These are just some of the existential questions raised in the much-beloved film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And if you haven't seen it, it is a movie about the biggest things in life, the smallest things. It's about the vastness of the universe. But at its heart, it's about family and the bonds that tie us together. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is also a genre-bending epic film. It's full of twists and turns. And to pull it all off, filmmakers Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert needed a score, a music score, that was just as wild, but also intimate and deeply emotional. So they turned to the band Sunlux. This is a group that's fronted by Ryan Lott with percussionist Ian Chang and guitarist Rafiq Badia. I recently sat down with Ryan Lott to talk about how the band pulled it off, how they did it. How did they manage to keep up with the seemingly endless changes and creative demands of a film that is so many things all at the same time? One of our early calls, we, you know, they articulated how we were going to need to use the tools that we have at our disposal to immediately transport and telegraph emotionally within the viewer where we are, why, and what we're supposed to feel about it. Because we're not going to be there very long. Any place we are in this film, we're not going to be there very long, right? Oh, it's seconds Um, at times. Yeah. And so sometimes they were like, okay, we're going to need these really idiomatic things. And then, you know, they talked to us about this song that they wanted to this animatronic raccoon to sing with the chef. It's like an homage to the Pixar universe, but it's kind of like dystopic. And 
in our minds, we're thinking, okay, we're going to hire help. Okay, we're going to farm this out. Okay, we're going to creative direct this, but we can't do this ourselves. We don't know how to do this ourselves. And I was like, wow, these guys are zany. We're like such a self-serious band. You know, sure, they called the right dudes, but they knew they didn't want a Hollywood composer. And they knew they didn't want to make a movie like any other movie. But that was the trick, right? Is how do we smash tropes and yet give in to tropes? How do we explore idiom by destroying idiom? You know, it's like there's so many things. Um, so as they were perusing their options, like the wide world of music, I think Daniel Kwan first came upon the idea of Sunlux. And my guess is what he heard in our music is a type of density of information that was akin to the sort of density of storytelling and texture that they were going to be going for in this movie. But not just that, the sort of beating heart of it all is a kind of heart on your sleeve, unrestrained emotional quality that is a trademark of much of the Sunlux discography. Well, this album is a lot. It's 49 tracks. It's nearly two hours of music. You wrote nearly 100 pieces, 100 cues for the film. So there's no shortage of tracks to pull from as examples to show just how quickly the music has to change and evolve to keep up with the pace of the film. But I thought we could hear a bit of a track called Deirdre Fight, Deirdre Fight, and then maybe we can just take it from there. This part. What's cool here is if you listen closely, there's going to be a cascade of piano. And then here I, we quote Claire de Lune. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How did how did that is something a theme a recurring <laughs> motif that is kind of peppered throughout the score? How did Claire de Lune make its way in? So, like most of the great ideas musically um, in this score, this idea came from Daniels themselves. So, Quan said, "You know, we have this. You know, one of our antagonists is Deidre." But her character evolves, obviously, and we see her from multiple perspectives, as we do every character in this in this film. Their insight was that even though she's an antagonist, what if we used Claire de Lune as her theme? And I remember my gut, I just have such a vivid memory of like being like, yeah, that's not going to work. That's, that, that, obviously, we're not going to do that. He must forget what that song sounds like. No, but sure enough, it was it was such cool insight because there is a point in the film in which this one of the most tender and 
melancholic and sweet and romantic pieces of music ever written, it, it serves its purpose in that way, in its melancholic beauty. But we don't see it at first. And so in their mind, they were reverse engineering this character across the multiverse. They were wondering, could we hear this melody for this character? Who's kind of a monster. She's a monster. Yeah, <laughs> she's the, kind of a monster. Yeah. She's she's like a domestic monster. She's a she's a surreal monster. You know, she's mm -hmm. all these different versions of a monster. But in the end, she's also a broken, beautiful lover. For people who are old enough to remember televisions used to have a dial on them that you could rapidly flip through and, and go through all the... There is so much channel changing going on in just that 30 seconds of music. Uh, I have to know how you approach something like that. I mean, do you just write one bar at a time? How do you even... Oh, that's a, that's a really great question. It, depending on the cue, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally a um, bar, like so <clears throat> four beats or whatever... At a time, but you're also you like you can never forget like the arc of the scene too. So there is a bit of a trick. People who haven't seen the film ask me, "Well, what's it about?" And I always say, "Well, it's sort of everything, everywhere, <laughs> 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 kind of all at once," you know. But you know, it's it's in part about the choices we make and the paths we choose to go down in life. And it focuses on this woman named Evelyn and and her strained relationships with uh, her husband and her daughter and. There's this moment where she's riding in an elevator and we suddenly get to see her entire life up to that, like from birth to now, the entire life she's led up to this point compressed again into about 30 seconds. And the track you wrote for it is called What a Fast Elevator. I'm so proud of that moment. Um, that is one of the most collaborative moments on the score. That's a great example of where, you know, you could press play and then immediately press pause and then, you know, ask a question about what just happened and then press play and then immediately press pause. And ask, right. What was that? And what was that? Yeah. One of the things that's, that's really cool is about this one is that ultimately we have to feel something. We have to arrive at a place of where we're drawn in to something that's maybe we don't have a name for it. But there's something deeply human and emotionally reverberant. And so this score isn't about being crazy. And this movie isn't about being absurd and being nuts and being all over the place. In the end, this movie and the score is really about a reverberating, quaking emotional state that is common to humans and the different, the many different versions of ourselves. Well, what were your early meetings with the Daniels like? I mean, I get it if it's, 
you know, a horror movie or it's a comedy or it's a love story, you know, something like, you know, that clearly defined. And they say, hey, okay, so we need a score like this. But as we keep Uh, saying everything everywhere, you know, it's a sci-fi action adventure, fantasy, horror, comedy, love story. (laughs) Honestly, our early meetings were really confusing. Uh, They, you know, told us about the story, which didn't really make sense because how do you talk about the story? But we had a great connection right away. And they said, okay, like, so before we get ahead of ourselves, you know, we'll send you the script and see what you think. I'm like, yeah, it's great. Let's do that. You know, so they sent us the script and we read it. I wasn't intelligent enough to follow it. I just could not wrap my mind around this thing. Uh, Meanwhile, my smarter and more attractive and um, more intelligent (laughs) bandmates, they loved it. And, you know, Rafiq, like, just left his butt off the whole time, couldn't put it down. I couldn't make my way through it because it just felt like I thought, I, I swear my PDF is broken. (laughs) <laughs> like there's, there's no way I'm not missing pages here. This is, this doesn't connect until I got to the end. And then I started to, I had some aha moments and I was like, okay, I'm starting to understand why they called us. But my response was, they're never going to make this movie. Nobody's ever going to make this movie. What a cool thing that the Daniels have reached out to us about this project that they have in mind. Too bad. Nobody's going to press play on this thing. And then, you know, at some point they were like, Guys, guys, great news. We got Michelle Yeoh. It was like, wait, what? Oh, so this movie's actually, we're going to do this? We're actually going to do this, you know? It's what made it suddenly real for everybody. And right. and Michelle was the human being on the planet for which they wrote this role. Let's talk about something else that I think really distinguishes your work from so much of what I hear, particularly in scores. And that's how you inject a sense of the sonic wonder into songs that would otherwise be or could be pretty conventional. And here's an example that I love. It's from a song called Everything Bagel. A very lovely little piano line or piano and strings on its own. But that world building underneath it, Mm -hmm. that's what makes it memorable. World building. Yeah, world building. What you just described in that cue is exactly it. It's like there's so much world building and and swirling and texture and unexpected maybe. And yet it's just this beautiful ballad. It's, you know, there's something on its surface that is just plainly pretty. My conversation with Ryan Lott of Sunlux about the band's score for Everything Everywhere All at Once will continue right after this short break.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. When you book through Capital One Travel using the Venture X Card, you earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights, and you earn unlimited 2x miles on all other purchases. Plus, receive a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. The Venture X Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Let's talk a little bit about sound manipulation, sound design, and, and instrument building. All of those things are kind of at the heart of what Sunlux does as a band. Um, I'd love to take a piece from the score and maybe just peel back the curtain a little bit on on what we're hearing and, and maybe how you did it. You know what would actually be a really fun one to talk about is Fanny Pack Fight. This is an example of how we we're going to need to go really hard into a zone and then never come back to it, right? Yeah. But we were going to have to really go hard into it and sell this moment because uh, there's some really important storytelling for this character that happens and it has to be just like really convincing. And and, and it's it's kind of an early scene that makes you go, this movie is not what I expected it was going to be. So the key to this cue was finding a sound that was going to in some ways evoke Hong Kong cinema, but not steal and not be patronizing or not poke fun at, but just be kind of strange and wild enough that it could accompany this martial arts sequence where the primary weapon of our protagonist is his fanny pack. Mm -hmm. So we often look in places where you wouldn't expect uh, for sounds that we need. And one of the ideas we had was this cue could have elements that felt really sped up, right? Because he's like whipping this thing around and moving super fast. And his character until this point was kind of slow and nerdy. And you just don't have a sense that he can move fast. Um, And then you see him like really kick ass and move fast. And so it's like, what if we started with sounds that are actually quite slow and low and just like really sped them up? What could we do? So Rafiq played some really tasty, slow bass lines like this one. And where we wound up with it after speeding it up and working with it a bit and piecing phrases together is sort of the primary thrust of this cue, which sounds like this. Mm 
So that, that that's Rafik's guitar. It's actually his guitar tuned down and sped back up and tuned up. So with some processing added first so that the processing is also sped up. And then I did the same thing with strings where I recorded strings slowly and then doubled his phrases. Here the here the sped up strings. Right? And then if we doubling guitar. So these, these sort of like uh, sped up fragments of performance is, is how we put this thing together. This one also has some really great drumming from Ian. Here's his drums. So this is a great example of a beat that he tracked. You know, it's got processing on it as well, but um, it's a beat that he tracked off picture. And a lot of times when you record things off picture, you get it as sort of unexpected result that can really be magic in implementation. You also obviously worked a lot outside of bass, guitar and drums with more traditional strings and string arrangements and other instruments like that that you also dismantled or sort of blew up. Yeah. One of the instrumentalists we worked with a lot for the score is a woman named Heinel Pivnik, who is a gifted violinist. She also is a great improviser and experimental sound maker. And uh, we did a few sessions with her where we were recording her violin, her beater violin, she calls it, where she lets herself abuse the instrument. We made this sound by she strikes a tuning fork and then holds the tuning fork against the string, but in a way that kind of like buzzes and warbles and then detuned, you know, and if we, you pulled it into a software sampler and play it back on keys and use the pitch bend and bend things around and do what we need to do. There's also a lot of big orchestral instrumentation. And I think what made doing all of that fun uh, all of the uh, orchestration fun is knowing that we could throw stuff like that against it. Let me poke around here for some more cool sounds. <laughs> so here's some weird stuff that I don't even know. I don't even know how Ian made that. Um, but Ian made that sound, and that is circuits from the Alphaverse. Oh, this is another one that I love that uh, Ian made. Oh, that is so cool. I think he's rubbing the skin of a drum and then manipulating it and, and slowing it down. You mentioned verse jumping, universe jumping, and it, it makes me think of something else that really stood out about this score, and that is how you constructed this seemingly endless build and release mm. Through, through mm. it all. I, you know, you know, a lot of this is done with dramatic swells and risers. And I, I have never heard so many of them in a single, <laughs> in a single. I mean, there are m many of them just in a single cue or a song, let alone the whole score. And I thought it would be kind of cool to play sort of a montage of them and you could hear them all together. But there were so many of them and the montage was getting so long. I thought, you know what, let's just hear all of them at the same time.
I got your two-hour score down to about 25 seconds. Wow, that's amazing. Gosh, that sounds so cool. <laughs> that was a very unique task with this score is to not, like, we didn't use any, like, risers libraries, like, sample libraries of, like, right. you know, trailer-ready stuff because the universes of this movie really needed to sound bespoke. And when you have a recurring motif like the or the you know these like swoops and these kind of rises and stingers and stuff you can get lazy really fast it starts to feel samey and like this movie never does that and i think some people will see this movie without much focus and kind of see it as merely splatter paint and whimsical and wild but it's actually quite rigorous yeah. it's incredibly rigorous and architectural and we wanted to bring the same kind of care so as we were working with all these risers and stingers and quick swells and pivots and turns and stuff, each one should be unique because what we're seeing is a unique pivot. She's going from one place to the next and uh, she's getting there with a, a sex toy tickler that she's uh, <laughs> using on her nose to make her sneeze, uh, you know. Um, the point being that it's, you got to disrupt yourself, your, your norm. Disrupt your you norm. You got to disrupt yourself. Care. Right. You know what? I'm so glad you said that because, I mean, that is really like a, the primary way that you verse jump in this story is you need to do what is completely uncalled for and absurd in your situation. One of those moments where she has to do something completely absurd in order to escape is uh, also one of my proudest scoring moments. Evelyn's character, in order to escape or to properly fight back... Um, against Deidre, she has to earnestly and completely profess her love for her. Which is such an amazing idea that we come back to later in the film where she fights with empathy. It's another fragment of quotation of Claire de Lune, but it's I arranged it for choir and our, our friends and longtime collaborators, Hannah Ben and Nina Moffat, formed the choir through multi-tracking. And I borrow from the very characteristic rhythmic profile of Rite of Spring. There's so much we could keep talking about with all this, but we haven't talked about the hit single, This Is A Life. This is a life Free from destiny Not only what we This is the song that plays over the end credits, the final credits, and you got Mitski to sing on it, along with David Byrne, who also co-wrote parts of it. You did this really great Song Exploder episode all about it, and you really break down how the track came together. And I encourage everyone to listen to it, but songs like this are often used to put a big period at the end of a story, right? They're sort of a statement piece that sums up what the, the whole thing we've been experiencing has been about. So it makes me want to ask you something, and that is, given how all over the place this movie and your score may seem to some people, I'm wondering, what do you think is the one singular thing, the number one thing, 
that this story and your score is about? Oh, I think it's love. I think it's love. And after all the madness and absurdity and fanfare and shock and sadness and melancholy and fun, you know, at the end of the day, it sort of all adds up to this just big, warm embrace. That's Ryan Lott of the band Sunlux, the trio that features Ian Chang on percussion and Rafiq Badia on guitars. I'm Robin Hilton from NPR Music. It's All Songs Considered. This is our life. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.